Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here we go, the official show on the Fish Stripes podcast channel. I am Eli Sussman, the managing editor of Fish Stripes, where we cover the Miami Marlins every single day in our own way for some reason, even in the midst of times like this, uh, where we're near a pretty low point. The Marlins only won one game this past week. They got swept three straight by the Yankees this past weekend in frustrating fashion. They are a season worth 17 games below the 500 mark, but we still have fun with it, and we hope you have fun with us, listening to us, reading Fish Stripes, following along on all of our platforms. For the first time this season, uh, we are have a vacancy for a title sponsor of this podcast, for a presenting sponsor, I should say, of this podcast. If you want to collaborate with us, if you want live reads during the show and collaborate in other fun ways for the large audience, I would say, that listens to this podcast and the very uh, engaged audience as well, you want to reach them. If you happen to be a Marlins fan and you run some sort of business that you think could benefit from being on our platform, just hit me up. You know where to find me on Twitter, at Fish Stripes. You can uh, find me personally on Twitter at real Eli E L Y. You could email me eli.sussman at gmail.com. If you're willing to pay just a little bit to be involved with us and support us in what we're doing, uh, we would make it worth your while. So that's something that I wanted to get out of the way early on as uh, we continue on with this show at this time. Um, there's really no positive way to spin what's going on with the Marlins at this particular moment. Um, the trajectory that they're on for the full season is like a 68 win pace, uh, 68 and 94, which would look awfully similar to where this team was in the first year of this rebuild in 2018. Uh, the most important thing that the Marlins want to do down the stretch is reinforce the idea that they are progressing towards something. Even though this is a clear step back from what they did in the shortened season of 2020, they want to uh, reassure people that this is moving into the right direction with the potential to take a very big leap in 2022. Uh, even if they feel wholeheartedly that th that's legitimately the case, um, a lot of people will there's some understandable reasons why it might be difficult to believe that's what's actually going on. Uh, we've talked this whole year about how their record isn't necessarily indicative of the talent on this team, that they really 
are closer than it appears, just looking at the record. Uh, but the bottom line is it's important to be competitive down the stretch one way or the other uh, to to win some games. There, This is not going to be an outright tank job. Um, even though they, they understand that the ultimate goal of winning a championship is out of reach, there is still pressure on this organization and on especially the key players in this organization if they want to continue to be key players moving forward it's important to perform well. They are going to be judged by what they do these final 57 games of the regular season, uh, both by the people in charge and, of course, the support of the fans, who ultimately are the ones that you need to win them over if you want that revenue to come in and that revenue to be spent on the kind of players that this front office will eventually need to acquire to get over the hump. So this episode will focus on what I term as give up guys, pretty self-explanatory guys that we're considering giving up on. I have four of them picked out. Uh, They're all position players. So pause the pod right here about these four quote give up guys that are familiar faces to Marlins fans. They're all position players. They've been on the team for a while, and I'm going to go through whether or not it's time to give up on them. So pause right here and see if you could guess who those four individuals are. All right, uh, time's up. They are Magneris Sierra, Jorge Alfaro, Isan Diaz, and Lewis Brinson. But those are four of the more prominent position players of this era of Marlins baseball, and they've all been bad, uh, particularly uh, the last couple years, but we're going to go through them one by one and see where we stand on them. Because as frustrating as it could be, these guys are relatively young. Uh, You could say, in the case of most of them, that they are at that spot in the aging curve where you think they are in their prime or about to enter their prime. And the Marlins do have somewhat of a troubling history with letting go of these guys too soon. That's one thing that, especially at this very moment in the team's history, when they want to be building towards something, the last thing they want to do is let go of an affordable, controllable, relatively young player right before that player really clicks. Starting with Sierra. So one of the keys when we go through all these guys is, yeah, exactly what sort of flexibility the Marlins have. With Sierra, they do not have much flexibility. He is, uh, I think he's about as young as any of these guys. He turned 25 in March, but he is out of minor league options. Uh, because of how he was handled at the start of his career. He was out of options last year as well. He played just well enough last year to stick on by um, at the time. But uh, this year, we've seen a lot of Sierra. He has been on the active roster the entire year. He's the only one of these guys who's been on the Major League active roster since day one. In fact, he's it's a really short list of players who have actually been on this Marlins roster from start to finish in 2021. Sierra has been one of them. And for the most part, it's been more of the same with him. What's been different is that coming out of the gate, he had a very marginal role. Like They did not make any sort of concessions to force him into the lineup until Starling Marte got hurt. And uh, even when he was hurt, Sierra couldn't really wrestle consistent starting playing time. Even now, with, um, of course, Starling Marte gone, with Adam Duvall gone, with Corey Dickerson gone, with Garrett Cooper injured, Sierra is not even a true everyday starter. Uh, So the organization has come to that realization that there is this very limited ceiling on Sierra, and most of it comes down to the fact that he does not hit the ball hard. He does not make enough quality contact. His career hard hit percentage is about half of the league average, which makes it one of the very worst among all 
position players who have actually gotten, as I said, hundreds of plate appearances to this point of his career. He is someone at times that really electrifies on the bases, um, but not really so much this year. I really have a hard time putting my finger on any individual plays this year where it felt like his legs really changed the trajectory of a game. He has had a couple of those moments in previous years. He's just not as aggressive on the bases as he should be for somebody that has the type of speed and he does not get on base in the first place enough. Uh, so during his Marlins career, dating back to 2018, a 282 on base percentage. Uh, and uh, of course, with the lack of impact that he makes on the bat, his slugging percentage is even lower than that. He has not hit a home run in his major league career. Uh, maybe he gets lucky at one point. Uh, there are some moments where, you know, if he pulls the ball the right way, he is physically capable of hitting it over the wall, goes to the right spot. It hasn't happened yet. He's had over 400 chances at the plate in major league games to do it, and he has not done it. He's out of options. He's He just has such a limited ceiling because of what he doesn't do with the bat in his hands. And although he makes a lot of contact, I mean... There's only so many infield hits that you can trust to get against major league defenses. It does not add up to being even a replacement level offensive player, although he's very good defensively and very versatile defensively. There's a base hit into center field. Here comes a throw from Sierra. Gets to the plate. Picked by Leone. And he applies the tag. You got to be kidding me. What a throw by Sierra, and what a play on the back end by Sandy Leon. I could see in the right situation with a certain major league team where he has that very valuable and important role. Uh, some of the names I mentioned a few moments ago that were in the Marlins outfield to start the year, they had an older outfield and a less athletic outfield in particular with Corey Dickerson and with Garrett Cooper. So when there were games early in the year where both of them were in the starting lineup, or even when Cooper alone was in the starting lineup, Sierra was that obvious candidate to come in later in the game to pinch run for him, to be a defensive replacement. And now for the rest of that season, this season, that is not like a fit because the Marlins do not have any old outfielders anymore. Everybody, all their outfield options right now, age 27 or younger. At the major league level, waiting at AAA, there's there's no old guys. Uh, some, even though Sierra might be a marginal upgrade over some of them uh, as a runner, as a defender, it's like not important enough to actually go out of your way to get him into the game. And when he's not in the starting lineup, then and he's not going to come in as a defensive replacement, you you know that he's not going to give you much help as a batter as well because he does not have that extra base threat, and his situational hitting is not particularly good. He doesn't make enough of those productive outs. He does make a lot of outs, as I said, with his OBP, as low as it is, and he just doesn't, he hasn't really fine-tuned his game to his skill set to be the best version of himself, and it's not at all complimentary with this roster this year, or even next year if you look forward, because all reports are, mainly from Craig Mish, of course, Swings and Mishes, the Miami Herald, that Mish is pretty convinced that the Marlins are continuing to pursue a young, controllable, everyday sort of center fielder from another organization. And so when that player comes over, again, that's not going to be a candidate for them to uh, have to be subbed out in the later innings for someone like Sierra. And because they traded away Duvall and because they didn't uh, extend Marte, there's this clear understanding from 
front office, this pattern of behavior where they're concerned about these aging outfielders. They want to go younger. And although I disagree with those decisions that they made to get rid of those guys, if that's a choice they're going to make, at least be consistent with the team that you're building around them. Uh, With all that said, I just, I don't see the fit at all with Sierra. Uh, He is getting ample playing time right now just by default, but Fortunately, we do see that Jesus Sanchez is progressing, coming back from the injured list after a COVID-related setback. Uh, He's playing baseball activities. My estimation is about a week and a half from now. It should be by that second week, if not at the very latest, the third week of August, Sanchez will be back from the injured list and playing every single day for the Marlins in the outfield. So that's a lot of playing time that you have reserved for somebody that is a higher priority that has a much higher ceiling. And he, at this moment, because he is on the COVID-related IL, he is off the 40-man roster. He'll need to be put back on the 40-man roster. When that happens, uh, Sierra is the one that, I think that's the time where you cut ties with him. Or not necessarily like say goodbye to him for sure. I think you just you need to remove him from the 40-man roster at that point where he's just taking up space. He does not have this clear role with the present or with the future of this organization. If he does clear waivers, then great. Then you can have him around. I think by all indications, he's been a supportive teammate. And again, there is a particular fit where he might complement what they have at the major major leagues, but I just don't see that right now. But if he does happen to clear waivers, it never hurts to have that depth at AAA and have him still in the organization. So as we go through these players, I'll tell you what I would do. I'm not expecting the Marlins themselves to do any of them, but just making the case that once you get a high-priority young outfielder back from the injured list and Jesus Sanchez, I think that's the time where the Sierra experiment is over. And I think a lot of you agree with me, but certainly let me know if you don't. Next one on this list of give-up guys, it's Jorge Alfaro. Um, but some similarities to Sierra and that he is out of minor league options. He's a very streaky player. There've been some ugly streaks, especially this year and where it would make sense maybe to option him down and have him work on some things on both sides of the ball. And they're not able to do that because of how quickly he made it to the major leagues and his options are used up. If they try to send him down, they need to, they can't do it without him actually agreeing to do so. So with Alfaro, there was that big talk coming into spring training about how he understood everything that was at stake for him. He was at the top of the list of guys that this was a make or break year for him in 2021. He dedicated so much of his offseason to improving on parts of his game that were lacking because he does some things very well with his raw power and with his throwing arm and even with his running relative to other catchers especially, but there are other like glaring holes in his game that certainly held him back last year and even made him a streaky player even during his best seasons. I was not totally buying into that. Um, there's just not always a correlation between putting in the effort and actually getting the results out of it. With him, what you've known is that he is so extreme in a bad way with his plate approach and with his, his selectivity, his decisions to both when he makes those decisions to swing, and of course the contact issues that he has uh, when he does actually think he know where the ball is heading. It's it's such a big flaw in his offensive game, and it has come back to bite him uh, the last two years. In 2019, he was 
buoyed up by an amazing batting average on balls in play because he hits the ball hard, because he does use all fields. For a while there, he was doing as well on balls in play as just about anybody in all of baseball. He was getting great results whenever he put the ball in play, and that was able enough to make him you know, a respectable offensive player in that regard. The, the luck has evened out. I don't, I don't know what to say. You know, he still does have the same type of batted ball ability. I mean, he showed it just a couple days ago during this Yankee series with that triple that he crushed into the gap in an important spot. And this one out toward left center field. That is going to get down. It's off the wall. Rojas will score. Alfaro on his way to second. Alfaro on his way to third. Well... We're looking for a big swing. We're going to get one. The big guy leans on a curveball, 80 miles an hour, out over the plate. Herman left this one up. Alfaro ready for it. He rockets it into the gap, and watch him go. So many of his plate appearances, though, are unproductive because of the strikeouts, because of getting himself into bad counts and then hitting it on the ground. Um, I think this year he has one of his highest ground ball rates of his career. Yeah, 55% ground ball rate. League average is in the mid-40s, way above average. And um, as someone that doesn't run quite as quickly as Sierra does, so many of those ground balls are automatic outs. You've seen the stats by now of how pitchers, key pitchers on the Marlins, just do not perform as well when they throw to him compared to when they throw to other catchers that the Marlins have had this year. His game calling is just not up to the same standard that you want from a major leaguer. And then there's that issue of blocking pitches and like actually receiving the ball. So his the one positive I could say is that his framing has been totally fine this year. I mean, there are a couple things you could point to, a couple key moments where it feels like that cost them. On balance, he's been fine in that regard. Perfectly average, if not slightly above average, in getting those borderline pitches. Um, But the other problem with his receiving is his blocking, that he has accounted for two-thirds of all the team's wild pitches. Um, You know about the pass balls. He leads all the majors in allowing pass balls at this point in the season, despite missing so much time with injury. But to me, wild pitches are also a pretty significant um, indicator of what that catcher is doing to make stops at the most important moments when there are actually runners on base and two-thirds of the team's wild pitches have been thrown with Alfaro behind the plate, even though he has caught less than half of the team's innings. Brutal when you're playing so many close games as the Marlins have this year, where the Marlins, as you've known this season, they have one of the best earned run averages in all baseball. They just give up a lot of unearned runs that Alfaro, unfortunately, contributes to. You have probably read, of course, the great column by Craig Mish in the Herald, uh, that detailed a lot of the Marlins' trade deadline thoughts and plans moving into the offseason. And Mish is reporting, quote, the Marlins are ready to move on from Alfaro. Uh, that's a that's a pretty jarring statement to say that, again, published in late July, we're recording this on August 1st, that there's still two months to go, and yet they are already of that mindset, executives in the Marlins front office, that they'll need a change at that position. He has said as much as well in, in additional conversations on social media. If they made that decision, you want my take that why not just DFA him right now? About one-third of his salary is still owed to him. If they get rid of him, then they don't get that money back. But they did save a little bit of money at the deadline with some of the trades that they made. They entered this year with one of the lowest payrolls in baseball. 
this is not the time to really be pinching pennies anymore. This is the time to start preparing your team to be decent next year. And fortunately, a lot of these starting pitchers that were missing earlier in, earlier in the year, they are steadily on their way back. Eliezer Hernandez back from the IL later this month. Pablo Lopez hopefully back from the IL at the end of the month. Cody Poti progressing. Edward Cabrera looking great in AAA and almost ready to break through to the majors. There are a lot. There are a lot of guys that they want to see pitch in the majors down the stretch. You want them pitching to a catcher that actually will be here beyond this current season. If they've already made that decision in their mind that he is not the guy, and they just traded for two catchers at the deadline, Peyton Henry, who has been assigned to AAA, and then Alex Jackson, who at this moment is on the major league roster. So we'll be curious to see exactly what they do with him on Monday, as they're currently carrying three major league catchers on the roster at the same time in Alfaro, Jackson, and Sandy Leone. I think it's time to cut the cord uh, with Alfaro. They're not going to carry these three catchers for very much longer. And uh, I'll remind you again, I don't predict that this is going to happen. I trust Mish's reporting on this, that the Marlins have reached this point where they just don't see Alfaro putting it together. And I'm kind of aligned by that. Despite the tantalizing power and athleticism that he has for that position, this this fundamental struggle with putting the bat on the ball and knowing when to swing, it's going to continue to hold him back from being an adequate player. And just from a dollars and cents situation, you know next year he's due a raise. He's due to make more money next year than this year by the structure of the arbitration system, and they're not going to be willing to pay that. I, I don't know what the weight is. Um, I Again, I understand he's had some great moments with his team. He really has. He is one of the more marketable players on this team when things are going right. Uh, things have not gone right for him much of this year. There was one small stretch shortly after he came back from the injured list, and that's about it. So I, I would turn the page on him right now, uh, whether that means making Alex Jackson the primary catcher or perhaps opening up a 40-man spot for Brian Navarretto. Brian Navarretto, he got just a cup of coffee in the majors last year, and for the most part, he's done a really solid job in AAA this year. He's a little bit younger than Alfaro, even though he was never a conventional top prospect in the way that Alfaro was. I'd love to see a little bit of Brian Navarretto down the stretch and uh, to close the book on this Alfaro era after almost three seasons. Now for Isan Diaz, who at this point is hiding in plain sight on the Marlins active roster. He only had one at-bat during that entire weekend series against the Yankees. Three games, just one late appearance for him uh, coming off the bench. With Isan, he's the one that has had the shortest look at the major leagues to this point in his career. Uh, You remember, of course, that he opted out of the 2020 season early on after that COVID outbreak. He opted back in, and then almost as soon as he got back in, he got injured. Uh, This year, he had his most substantial opportunity yet to stick on the roster because of the injury to Jazzism Jr. early on, an injury to Miguel Rojas, and even right now, uh, they squeezed him up while Brian Anderson was still out, and for the moment, he's still coexisting with all those guys, but as I said, kind of hiding in plain sight. First career at the major league level, a slash line of 173, 271, 278. I did not look it up prior to the show, but I think that must be the lowest batting average in baseball out of any guy with a minimum of like 300 at-bats during that span. It's hard to imagine anybody getting fewer hits in that many opportunities. If you dig into the stat cast data, there's a little bit of bad luck. 
just from watching the games, you know there have been some extra base hits of his, potential extra base hits that were robbed by great defense. Unfortunately, I mean, that one moment we all remember him from, homering against DeGrom, no doubt home run at City Field, um, many of his other home runs have been wall scrapers, and some of those bad lucks have come on wall scrapers as well. It was The hope was that he had some plus power in him where it wouldn't really matter so much about the dimensions of the ballpark, that he would he was able to generate enough bat speed to overcome that. That has not been the case. That has not been the case. He does hit the ball hard, and we've actually seen that, especially since this All-Star break, which is when he got called back up most recently, that when he does get the ball, the bat on the ball lately, he's hitting it hard more consistently than he has at any other point in his brief major league career. My concern with him is that he the margin for him to struggle at the plate is, is so small because of how little he offers in other facets of the game. You know, he was raised for most of his minor league career as a second baseman, and it just has not translated as well in the majors as we thought it did. With his his arm strength, is not nothing special. His hands are not particularly good. Um, his awareness as a defender is kind of disappointing as well. The Marlins had him play quite a bit of third base this year in the absences of Brian Anderson and John Birdie. Um, and I would say he's been a better defensive third baseman than a second baseman, but that's not really saying much. There's still some limitations there. Um, in terms of what he offers at that position. This is kind of similar to the Sierra note where I just don't see exactly where he fits in the near-term future. Even if you think that he hasn't had quite as long a look as Alfaro or Lewis Brinson, that the way this organization is built, there's not really that complementary role for him to play. Uh, Based on how the Marlins handled Miguel Rojas at the trade deadline, According to Mish, according to Peter Gammons, they really declined to engage in any sort of real trade talks about him, even though there were inquiries about him. You know, multiple teams did reach out, did try to make specific offers, and that those didn't really go anywhere. With Rojas, he has that option in his contract for next year that's either a club option or a vesting option, and it's a good value because of how solid all-around player Miguel Rojas is. He's still a great hitter, especially against left-handed pitching, and he is an awesome defensive player. He is playing as well defensively as he ever has, like enough so that you could see him still being an everyday player in 2022. With Jazz, I don't think it even needs to be said, although uh, recording this coming off a really rough defensive moment for him in Sunday's game against the Yankees, he, he is very error-prone. Some of the decisions he makes in the field are uh, really head-scratching, where he's just trying to do a little bit too much. But his skill level in the middle infield is is higher. Like You do see the makings of an above-average middle infielder for him, even if it is eventually just second base. I saw some comments on Twitter during this game, people saying, hey, the Marlins have a big void in center field, and we know Jazz, uh, that at the very least, he's going to be a big leaguer for a long time, and why not start with that transition? Why not experiment and see if Jazz can stick in center field where his speed will play and all that? But they should not be entertaining that as an option. If you just watch the entirety of Jazz's season, the skill level that he has making a variety of plays in the field shows that he is going to be fine, I believe, as a middle infielder moving forward. Then you have Brian Anderson, who has reached base in every single game since coming back from the IL. You look up now, and his stats are relatively close in line to where they had been in his previous seasons when 
we thought he was one of the more underrated players in baseball. Uh, there have been suspicions that, yeah, maybe they want to go a different direction than him at third base. I don't know why, because there's no obvious fill-in within the organization or anybody that I could really think of off the top of my head that they would acquire via trade or free agency at that position. Uh, I think he's going to be their opening day third baseman in 2022. And exactly how that goes from there, I don't know. Um, maybe that season in 2022 is another disappointment, and they do sell off guys like Rojas and Anderson as that season goes on. But for the next, you know, nine, 10 months, there's no sort of fit for Isan. Those three guys right there, McGee Rowe and Jazz and B.A., they are more or less every single day players at those positions. So um, I just don't see where Isan fits in. Um, the bat has not shown enough to make him like a valuable pinch hitter. And um, it's I think it's just not a very complimentary, complimentary skill set with him as a seldom used sort of bench player. When you have John Birdie, hopefully, coming back from the injured list relatively soon, and he has just as much team control as Isan does. Also, I'd, I'd love to see Bryson Brigman at some point. I mean, he continues to do everything possible to stand out at AAA. He is, I, I think, anyway, you look at it, a superior defensive player, superior base runner than Isan, and probably a superior contact skills as well. Exactly whether his power will play in the majors, I don't know. As I said with Isan, his has, hasn't. You know, that's the one tool that I think if if there's a scenario where Isan does put together a really substantial career as an everyday player, he's going to be carried by his power. And uh, to this point, um, it's a long way between the reality and what he's shown so far and what you're projecting him to do. For someone that is still relatively young at 25 years old, I just don't know how much how much more patient the the Marlins can be with that. Given his prospect pedigree, I think Isan really does still have some trade value, a little semblance of it, where the Marlins could flip him to another organization where he fits better, where there's a more pressing need at those infield spots, and the Marlins could get something in return that they find sort of useful in the minor leagues. So what what I would do with Isan is, uh, for this moment, He's not being used at the major league level, and I don't see that happening the rest of this year. I would simply just send him down to AAA. Um, you never know what will happen with these injuries. Uh, for the moment, with all those guys healthy, I, I don't see the usefulness on the roster. I would send him down, and I think it's Bryson Brigman time to call him up. Where Brigman does not have the same hype that Isan did as a prospect coming up. Um, Brigman, you wouldn't necessarily force him into an everyday role, but he offers more as that complimentary piece, as the guy that could help you in late game situations and base running situations, as and someone that has shown some very fascinating adjustments this year. You could listen to our conversation with Bryson Brigman on the podcast from uh, about a month and a half ago about what he's doing differently and what he's doing better this year than ever before. I think it's time to give him a shot. And barring any like injuries to these main infielders down the stretch. If, if Isan doesn't get another opportunity the rest of this year, then you, you trade him in the offseason. It's selling low on him, but not waiting until he hits rock bottom. It's at a time where I think he still gets something in return, and uh, you just move on. You know, it's it's frustrating because of what he did during that 2019 minor league season, winning minor league player of the year. Um, 
and yeah, a lot of the hype for him. And of course, dating back to the, the reality that he was part of that Christian Yelich trade. But I, I think it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense at this point. The decisions they should be making down the stretch should be productive. Give Brigman a shot just to see exactly if there's anything interesting there. Maybe there isn't. I'm not going to oversell him. Um, but with Isan, the fit just is not logical for the Marlins, and they shouldn't be trying to force it anymore. The final guy of these uh, potential give-up players is the one that has been on top of our minds for years now, the former top prospect in the Marlins organization, Lewis Brinson. Brinson, of all these guys, is having the best season in 2021. I'll give him credit where credit is due, that he is playing as well as he ever has here at uh, age 27. For his Marlins career overall, God, we've seen 864 plate appearances of him, which is fourth most in the organization during that entire span, dating back to when they acquired him, hitting right around 200 with a 245 OBP, a 316 slugging percentage, uh, striking out at uh, almost a 30% rate. His strikeout percentage this year is about as high as it's ever been. That being said, there's a little bit of a trade-off in that he is slugging better than he ever has. For a moment, his slugging percentage ticked above 400. Uh, even now, he is slugging for this season higher than the Marlins as a team are slugging in the high 300s. He is better than the average Marlins hitter at getting extra bases, which I think says a lot more about the Marlins offense than it does a positive for Brinson. But there's been that, and I think he has just steadily gotten even better as a defensive player, where he is a clear plus defender in a way that Isan certainly isn't, that Alfaro certainly isn't, and pretty much on par with Magnara Sierra uh, in that regard, in that he has that ability to fit in at any of the three outfield spots his throwing arm has improved as Marlon's career has gone on. He helps in that regard. Um, uh, even the unfortunate side with him is that, yeah, the base running has never translated the way that we thought it would. He just does not make aggressive decisions on the bases. He doesn't even try to see if he can like put pressure on the defense and make something happen out there in, in most cases that you're really relying on the defense and relying on the bat against left-handed pitching. Uh, the Marlins at this point, it's sort of similar to Sierra, where I just I give them some credit that they're not trying to pretend that he's an everyday player anymore. They're just not trying to sell that anymore, and there's nobody within the organization that is delusional enough to believe that he has that ceiling anymore. You know, he's had all these reps, and there are enough fundamental issues with his offensive approach that he's just not going to be an everyday player. He continues to struggle to identify pitches out of the hand, off-speed pitches, and take bad swings out of, out of them. And he has this unwillingness to use the opposite field. He goes to the opposite field like less than 20% of the time on his balls in play, where, which drives down his batting average and makes it easier for defenses to shift against him. Uh, it's evened out a little bit recently, but for his career since coming up into the league, that Brinson has one of the bigger disparities between uh, his weighted on base average and his expected weighted on base average. This is according to StatCast, where based on where he hits the balls and how hard he hits them, they feel he's been pretty unlucky throughout most of his career. Um, and to me, there's 
not a whole lot of luck involved with that. That has more to do with his batted ball profile, that he is just way too predictable, and there hasn't been much adjustment in that regard, even as, as he's had better results these past couple of years than in his previous years. So he's reached a point where I think he's pretty comfortably a replacement level player, if not slightly better than that. Um, I went fairly into detail, I remember, at the start of this year, you know, before the season, about how I was disappointed that they kept him over someone like Harold Ramirez. Like, I thought we reached a point with Brinson where um, I was ready to, you know, cut ties with him before this 2021 season. And we're at a point where, uh, yeah, don't get it twisted. Like, my expectations for him have not changed much whatsoever. But the little bit of progress that he has made and, you know, the particular skill set that he has honed, it makes him more complimentary to this team than uh, the guys that I've mentioned, Isan or Afaro or even Sierra, where just like Sierra, as an overall value player, he might not even be better than Sierra, but I do feel he's more complimentary uh, with his ability to hit left-handed pitching. Um, and yeah, just the fact that he makes quality contact every now and then, which you don't get from Sierra. The Marlins made this decision to you know clean out all those veteran outfielders and one key here is exactly what they do with Garrett Cooper. Cooper was playing a ton of right field this year, as you know, when he was healthy. Um, and that, although that did not contribute to his season-ending injury, that they the organization has expressed concerns about having him play the outfield on a regular basis. And I think a lot of people can understand why, that somebody at his size, um, historically, those guys do not hold up well durability in the outfield, that it is, it's very tough on players of that size. So we'll, we'll see exactly how they handle Cooper. And I think until they make that decision of how he recovers from his season ending elbow surgery and his, how he fits with the team next year, you know, assuming there's a DH, but also uh, have to wait to see exactly how they pursue other outfielders to kind of fill in these holes. We're at a point where, to me, yeah, there's really no locks whatsoever in this entire outfield. It's amazing that we've gotten to this point where I'm optimistic that Jesus Sanchez will fill one of those spots, ideally right field. Um, but once he does exactly what sort of ripple effect that has with Cooper, uh, I don't know. Uh, wait to see. And that's where I am with Brinson. You know, it's kind of a cop-out answer. I gave you more specific ones with these other guys. With Sierra, as I said, I'd have him designated for assignment as soon as Jesus Sanchez gets back. With Alfaro, I would have him cut right now. That It's time to just rip off the Band-Aid and turn the page on a guy that internally you already feel is not part of your future at all. With Isan, I, I would send him back down to AAA, um, hold on to him as an emergency uh, just in case, but no longer make him any sort of priority for this team down the stretch and then pursue a trade for him this coming offseason. And with Brinson, his situation is a little bit more murky. I I really do feel that it might be best for everybody involved if he does go to another organization, turns over a new leaf, what have you, just get a fresh start from that, because the fact that he was, through no fault of his own, you know, just through the eyes of evaluators, he was that consensus best prospect in the Marlins organization when they acquired him, that, in fact, the reality that he's not going to come close to being the player he was projected to be, it, it, it might be tough. To, for him mentally and not in his very best interest to stick around and it's not going to be comfortable for the fans that I don't think the fans are ever going to get fully behind him 
even if he does prove to be this really adequate fourth outfielder type who complements uh, the rest of this roster. So if the fans are going to be frustrated by him and kind of um, amplify every mistake that he makes, um, I could, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed whatsoever of them just saying goodbye to him. But what I do feel is that just given how this outfield shakes out right now, there's no rush for him. I, I think he should stick on this roster the rest of the season, um, play a lot against left-handed pitching. Uh, they're not going to force him in there as an everyday player. I, I like what I've seen from the new guy, Brian De La Cruz, during his first series with the Marlins. Um, we do anticipate that Jesus Sanchez is going to be back very shortly. There's still enough time in the minor league season with either Peyton Burdick or J.J. Blade to really catch fire in the minors, and maybe they get a cup of coffee at the end of the year and would obviously get priority over Brinson as well. Uh, in the meantime, I, I don't think it hurts to have him hang around the team uh, for the rest of this year and try to use him in a, in a particular role that benefits everybody involved. Uh, so I'm curious about what you guys think. I mean, these are players that are very familiar to all of us, but I wanted to have this kind of conversation about what it is about them that is going wrong um, and how they fit with this organization moving forward and you know the specific decisions that the team should make uh, based on all the factors that we have in mind. Let me know what you think. Uh, hopefully the next pod coming up is a little bit more positive. I think we'll be fo- focusing on some prospects and draft coverage there coming off the news that the Marlins draft class is all official. That was maybe the biggest uh, development, that, not a surprise, based on where things were headed, but that confirmation that number one pick Khalil Watson has signed his deal and been introduced. Um, It's a huge boon to this Marlins organization that they hold in the draft class that it did. I'm sure we'll be talking about it later this week on the pod. I've been Eli Sussman here with Fish Drives. Uh, We'll have our live streams coming up for the upcoming series. There's still a lot to cover about this team down the stretch. As I said up top, still a lot of pressure on them to perform down the stretch. Uh, the way that they're heading right now, uh, if they finish last place in the division the same way they did in 2018, 2019 on the surface, that's going to drive a lot of people crazy. That's going to make a lot of people discouraged heading into 2022. Um, there, there should be some urgency to play well and to have the right personnel on the roster down the stretch. I'll be watching closely for sure, and I hope you guys will continue to be listening to us on the Fish Stripes podcast. Thank you, as always, for your support and your time. Go Fish! Thank you.